Well, tonight marks the beginning of the season of Lent for us, and there are now 40 days until Palm Sunday and the beginning of Holy Week. And during that time, uh, during the times that we're together for worship over the course of these 40 days, we'll be exploring the Psalms of Lament sprinkled throughout the Psalter. And the Psalms of Lament were written by people in distress, for, to be read by people in distress. And as such, they are simultaneously comforting and jarring in their raw honesty. The tone of the Psalms of Lament can at times feel brash, making you wonder aloud whether you can really say such things to God, and yet there they are, forever captured in the Word of God, teaching us how to engage in a relationship with Him when we are angry, confused, or distressed. And tonight we begin our encounter with the Psalms of Lament in Psalm 90, which is a psalm that grapples with both the brevity and the difficulty of life. At times it echoes Ecclesiastes in its declaration that life is vanity, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The psalmist cries out in verse 14, Satisfy us, because we are deeply unsatisfied with life. He pleads in verse 15, Make us glad, because life is a disappointment. He begs God to establish the work of our hands because what we build is often neglected or torn down by the next generation. Vanity of vanities, meaningless. The Anglican Book of Common Prayer deems it a psalm appropriate to be read at a funeral service because Psalm 90 is a psalm that does justice to our complexity of feeling towards life, capturing our exhaustion and disappointment, while simultaneously admitting our persistent desire for more. Listen to the psalmist fretfully acknowledge the fragility of humanity in verses 3 through 6. In verse 3, he acknowledges that we are but dust, and all it takes is one word from God, and it's dust to dust, ashes to ashes. We return to the ground from whence we came. Humanity is swept away as in a flood, gone in an instant. We're like a dream that disappears at dawn and is difficult to remember. In discussing verse 6, one scholar writes, In the arid climate of the Near East, a night rain will often cause a carpet of green grass to spring up in the morning on the otherwise brown hills. But the blazing daytime sun will frequently also scorch it out by nightfall. The psalmist is saying, our lives are like that grass, here in the morning, full of such promise, but gone by the night. And there is a longing for more in these poetic images, a regret that this is the way things are for us. The psalmist feels like life comes to a premature end. It's cut short while it's still full of hope. And he's asking God for just a little bit longer. Have you ever asked God for that? Just a little bit longer. For me, for my loved one, just a little bit longer. And yet at the same time in verse 13, he wonders how long. And begs for God to return and put an end to this misery of life. 
In verses 9 and 10, he acknowledges the difficulty of life. Our years come to an end with a sigh. Like the exhale of a person who has been carrying a burden for far too long. We live 70 or 80 years, but they're years of toil and trouble. And the death which he was begging to delay earlier on is now a mercy. He's conflicted about life, just as we are. Desiring for it to go on forever, but not like this. The psalmist lives in a conundrum that is all too familiar for us. On the one hand, life is so overwhelming and difficult that we just can't go on. And on the other, there is this confusing desire, expectation even, that it should go on. Indeed, it should go on forever. And Psalm 90 is his pursuit of an answer to this riddle within his mind and heart, a riddle that all of humanity has to answer. I mean, even the 80s synth-pop band Alphaville wrestles with this question. Do you really want to live forever, they ask. And they reach a conclusion that is similar and yet vastly different than the answer the psalmist provides us in the rest of Psalm 90. You would think the obvious answer to the question, do you really want to live forever, would be yes. But because the mortality rate remains at 100%, we have reached a compromise with death that Alphaville articulates for us. They ask, do you really want to live forever? And their answer is, forever young. I want to be forever young. In other words, we want what's impossible. And so we've developed these sentimental notions of of legacy and immortality. As one philosopher puts it, we've made peace with death. We'll settle for notoriety and memory. And this explains why our, our funeral services have been turned into parties, because the mention of death threatens to expose our inability to persistently remember or represent that person as they truly were. And that same philosopher remarks about this peculiar pursuit of a persevering memory, saying, our confidence that we can achieve such immortality seems odd when you consider the myriad of forgotten ones who've preceded us. And he's right about that. I can't even tell you the names of my great-grandparents, let alone the first fact about their personalities. I barely knew my grandparents even. The pursuit of legacy is delusional. And yet it's the answer that our society has arrived at in our wrestlings with mortality. We can't live forever, so we tell ourselves we don't really want to in the first place. We want our legacy to live on. And yet we've invested at the same time tremendous amounts of energy and money into delaying death. We don't want to live forever, but forever, but neither do we want to die. We fear death, and we are living longer than ever as a consequence, but without any idea about life's purpose or the joy inherent to it. Raymond Barfield is a pediatric oncologist and professor at Duke's Medical School who claims that our fear of death and our desire to be desirable has resulted in the, pure, in, in the pursuit of mere duration for duration's sake. We settle for mere existence, even if it's a miserable existence. existence. There's a, a sickness in our pursuit of quote-unquote wellness that betrays our deep insecurities and fears about death, dying, and the desire to be desirable. We don't want to die but neither do we want to live forever. 
So our solutions are mere duration and the insane pursuit of a legacy that will be truly lasting. But the psalmist offers a more satisfying solution. In fact, he opens his prayer with the solution. Verses 1 and 2 read, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This statement about God reveals Him to be the solution to both the brevity and the difficulty of life. He's eternal, existing before even the mountains were brought forth, from everlasting past to everlasting future. He lives forever. And He's a dwelling place, a refuge, a safe harbor, a shelter from the storms. His life is not toilsome or troubled. It's peaceful and joyful. God is the solution. If only we could somehow live with Him, be united to Him. If only we could live in Him. In Him, there is an eternity of happiness and joy. We've tried for years to be like Him. The history of humanity is full of our attempts to be like God. And we have death only to show for it. We have attempted to rise above our natural creaturely limitations by grasping for power and pleasure, immortality, a lasting legacy. We've tried to make a name for ourselves, but we've been met with disappointment at every turn. We have forgotten and will be forgotten. Our efforts have actually only further alienated us from God. We rejected Him and sought eternal joy apart from Him, but that's impossible. We have offended him, sinned against him. And the psalmist recognizes that our sin has separated us from God, separated us from the eternal joy we seek. Our iniquities are before you, he writes in verse 8, and our secret sins in the light of your presence, always before his face. If ever we are to be united to God and experience the eternal joy we seek, then our offenses must be forgiven. We have to be woken up and brought back from our rebellion. And in Jesus Christ, we have one who brings us back. He's the eternal Son of God. And yet on the cross, what happens to Him? He's swept away as in a flood. He's like a dream that disappears at dawn. He's like the carpet of green grass that is scorched out by nightfall. He did nothing wrong but his life was cut short so that we could live forever. He had not offended God, but he experienced our damnation so that we might experience his joy, the embrace of the Father welcoming us home. He took on our story so that his story became our story. He died our death and then wrote a new ending for us. The Christian story does not end in death, but in resurrection and ascension. Jesus rose from the dead after having died our death and we rose in him and he ascended to the Father and in him we now have peace with God and communion with the one we have offended. Jesus bound himself to us in love and we have been bound to him through faith so that we can now realistically say that we exist in God. We are in him, to use a favorite phrase of the Apostle Paul. Indeed, Paul goes so far as to claim that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
You see, God addresses the problem of the brevity and the difficulty of life by putting us to death even while we still live and raising us to live His life in the middle of our own. The end of our story comes in the middle of our lives. We're hidden in Christ and guaranteed eternal joy. Nothing can separate us from His love for us, not tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, danger or the sword. We're secure in Him. Our future is secure in Him. Our joy is secure in Him. Therefore, we no longer have to be concerned with ourselves. We don't have to think about ourselves. That's the cause of so much of our fear, our disappointment, our anger. When we realize we're not in control and things don't go the way we want. But in Christ, we no longer have to be concerned about ourselves, but about pleasing Him. Our lives have been given new purpose. Jesus has become our purpose. Secure in Him everything we do in this life, whether grieving or celebrating, whether working or resting, is in Him and for Him. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul tells us that Jesus died so that those who live might no longer have to live for themselves, but for Him who for their sakes died and was raised. It is a gift. He takes the angst out of life because it's possible to please Him and to fulfill our purpose in sickness or in health, in poverty or wealth, in joy or in sorrow, in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. And neither do we have to desperately cling to this life and try to remain desirable. Jesus has shown you that He desires you more than all the riches of heaven. We can freely acknowledge we're going to die because we know that life awaits us. We know that love awaits us. In fact, the psalmist says that numbering our days, acknowledging our finitude, makes a person wise. Because it allows us to think clearly about the purpose for which we were both created and redeemed. We were created and redeemed to bring glory to God. And in Him, our work will endure. Because He endures. And He has given us His work to accomplish on this earth. The psalmist closes by repeating his prayer that God would establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And God has fulfilled that prayer by turning our hands into Christ's hands. Indeed, the church is His body in this world. The instrument through which He has chosen to work. All that is done in Him and for Him will endure for eternity. Because it's his work. The British missionary C.T. Studd wrote a decent but often quoted poem that speaks to this beautiful truth. He writes, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. In giving us his life, Jesus has given us eternal happiness both now and yet to come. We have died in him, and now we live in him. And though we shall die, yet we will live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.